Why, hello, everybody. Good evening. Oh, y'all can do better than that. Good evening. <laughs> I just want to thank everybody for being here tonight to celebrate the authors of the NPR Illinois 2023 This I Believe essay program. For those that don't know me, my name is Bee Bonner, and I am the co-host and editor of Community Voices at NPR Illinois. It's just a daily talk show where we get to know people like yourselves in the community. So if you're interested in checking that out, please go to nprillinois.org. But you're here with us tonight, and we're going to have a good time. So again, I'm so excited. I thought I would tell you all a little bit about This I Believe first. So This I Believe was started by radio journalist Edward R. Moreau in 19. 1951. And NPR Illinois adopted this idea to hear from young minds in the community like we're getting ready to do tonight. And so as we celebrate them, I want you all to be into this too. We're going to celebrate you a little bit tonight. So y'all ready for that? Now, I grew up in a church, and so what we like to do is a little bit of call and response. And so I'm going to ask you all to do a couple of things, but I need y'all to respond and do as I say do. You got it? Yeah. Okay. If you are a parent, a family member of an essayist, I need you to get up, clap, yell, shout, whatever you can do tonight. And keep standing, keep making noise. If you are a friend of an essayist, it is your time to shine. So friends, get up. You're supporting your friends up here. If you are a teacher, a mentor, a guidance counselor, a principal, anything like that, get up and show your support for these authors. If you've listened to the essays, get up. I know, some, I know most of y'all have, and this should be everybody. If you are here to celebrate the 2023 This I Believe essayist, get up and make some noise. So essayists, I want you to look out in the audience. All of these people are here for you. They're here to support you because we care what you have to say. It is so important, so never lose that. Thank you, everybody. You can be seated. Amen. There you go. See, somebody's with me. <laughs> so before we move on, I have a lot of people to thank. This program wouldn't be done with just me. It can't be done with just me. So if you're out in the audience, I want you to clap for yourself if you hear your organization or you hear your name. So first, the Rotary Club of Springfield Sunrise. They have been such a great partner to this program since the beginning, whether it's offering ideas, offering a listening ear, and because of them, we've been able to up the scholarship amount for this program, which is so important as these young people head into the world, college, jobs, whatever it is. So thank you, Rotary Club. I also want to thank a new partner this year, the Illinois Times, for printing the essays in the paper. It was so nice. I was talking to Randy about this. It was so nice to go all around town and see so many smiling faces on the front of the paper. So thank you, Illinois Times, for doing that for us. I also want to thank BLH Computers that has been a partner for a few years now. Thank you so much for what you do and helping to make the scholarship what it is. I'm also going to give a huge thank you to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum where we're at today in the beautiful Union Theater. Isn't it nice in here, y'all? It's so nice. So special shout out to Joe Crane and Christina Shutt. They are such great friends to us, such great friends to the station. They've done a lot to make sure we could be here today. So thank you for all your help. 
I'm also going to thank Mary Beth and Harvey M. Stevens because they really helped bridge the gap this year for the scholarship amount. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm also going to thank my chancellor, UIS Chancellor Janet L. Gooch for purchasing the This I Believe essay books for the students. Thank you so much. <laughs> At this time, I want to acknowledge any dignitaries and legislators out there. I know I see one out there. State Senator Steve McClure is here, so go ahead, wave your hand, stand up. <laughs> and I also want to acknowledge State Senator Jill Tracy and State Senator Sally Turner for reaching out to the students and offering them some congratulations. So thank you so much for doing that. I got a couple of more people to thank y'all, so bear with me. <laughs> At this time, I also want to acknowledge UIS Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs and Provost Brandon Schwab and Executive Director of the Center for State Policy and Leadership, Dr. Molly Lamb. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Now, I do want to take time right now to tell you again, this program wouldn't be what it is without the help of the NPR Illinois staff. They do so much to help me make this program happen. So you might have seen them at check-in. Some of them are up here with me. So thank you for that. And thank you to the judges. I see some judges out there. Wave y'all hands. There you go. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you all for taking time to read the essays. Thank you for taking the time to offer your opinions and your support. It means a lot because there's so much work that goes into this, y'all. They had to read all 151 essays. So they have a hard job. So thank you. Now, I know y'all ready for me to take my seat so y'all can hear y'all kids. But first, we are going to hear a few words from UIS Chancellor Janet L. Gooch, followed by president of the Rotary Club of Springfield Sunrise, Laura Carmody. So as they come to the stage, please give them a round of applause. Well, I know I can't beat that intro by B. That was, that was something. But good evening, and it really is my honor as the Chancellor of UIS to help welcome you tonight. Thank you so much for being here as we celebrate the amazing and inspiring This I Believe Illinois program. Support for This I Believe continues to grow, and I want to thank all of our sponsors for making this program possible. UIS is extremely fortunate to have NPR Illinois on our campus. The station is a very strong example of how our university connects to the community, and it's so important to UIS as we work to fulfill our mission. As the public radio station based in our capital city, NPR is a critical contributor to helping our community learn about important issues and better understand the world around us. And this is exactly what we try to do at UIS as educators. Additionally, NPR's programming often is the first encounters that many local residents, including some of our students here tonight, have with our university, which is really important to us. The 2023 class is the 18th class to share what they believe with NPR Illinois. And this year, as you heard, 15 schools throughout the NPR Illinois listening area participated in this, I believe. I hope all 151 students who submitted essays found this writing process to be a positive opportunity to reflect on their thoughts and opinions about this transformational moment in time in their lives. Congratulations to the 10 essayists who were selected to be here tonight. 
Your essays are insightful, they're inspirational, they're uplifting, they're heartbreaking, and so much more. I really admire you and your ability to see these brief moments in your time for more than what they really are. It takes a certain level of bravery to put yourself out there, to share some of your innermost thoughts, and to better understand yourself and help other people understand as well. Your words explored childhood memories and foundational moments, honored people and places that have inspired you, provided new perspectives on loss, celebrated the gift of friendship and second chances, explored the true meaning of family, and taught readers and listeners the importance of feeling confident in who you are. I hope you've been able to see how powerful your words are and how important your voice is. Please keep sharing your voice and using your gift for writing to bring communities together by reminding us of the foundational moments and beliefs we share, or at the very least can appreciate. It is my honor to gift our 10 chosen essayists with a copy of This I Believe, selections from the 1950s radio series by Edward R. Morrow. It was his simple yet profound idea to ask people to share a brief personal philosophy that sparked our own NPR program and others like it nationwide. Again, thank you very much, and thank you for being here. Good evening and welcome. As B said, my name is Laura Carmody, and I am the president of the Sunrise Rotary Club. And our Sunrise Rotary Club is very proud to partner with NPR Illinois and with our generous sponsors to promote the This I Believe program. On behalf of our Sunrise Rotary Club, I'm congratulating all 10 of you amazing writers on your outstanding essays and your $500 award. So please enjoy your evening. Thank you, Chancellor Gooch, and thank you, Laura, for your words. All right, everybody, it is the moment we've all been ready for. So who is ready to hear the 2023 essays? All right, coming up first, we have Lily Churchwell from Hillsborough High School reading, I Believe in Breakups. We need to talk. The glow behind the letters dims and goes dark. I'm at my friend Sophie's house listening to the new Harry Styles album when I get the We Need to Talk text from Ethan. At first, I didn't think anything of it because we're already planning on hanging out with a group of friends next Sunday. However, when I started asking follow-up questions and getting terse answers, my heart started to race. He's breaking up with me. I just think it's better for the both of us. My stomach is being pushed down to the depths of the earth. Tears fall into the white porcelain sink. I look up into the mirror to see my glassy red eyes in the reflection before staring daggers through the obnoxious pink hand towel with a smiley face on it. What do I do? How can I get him back? Did I change? This breakup put me in a weirdly dark place where I started thinking of myself through the eyes of others rather than my own. When getting dressed, I intricately chose clothing that would be the most flattering for dudes to look at. I strive to look effortless even though I care too much because guys don't like girls who aren't afraid to show skin. I also changed my personality because guys don't like loud girls. I've remained silent in class discussions so my questions won't be viewed as dumb. This becomes a problem so severe that it affects my understanding of classroom material because I'm too afraid to ask for help. Looking around, I start to see the signs. My grades are slowly dropping, and my oversized Jonas Brothers t-shirt in the closet is collecting dust. The realization hit. 
It hit me like a bus going a trillion miles an hour. Why was I doing this? I'm not planning on pursuing any of these boys in my life, so why do I want to please them so much? Why did I become this person? I'm not like this. This isn't me. Now I wear my Jonas Brothers t-shirt frequently and don't give it a second thought because it pleases me. I want to be who I really am rather than what I assume a guy wants me to be. A single text message turned my whole world upside down. However, I use my mental dilemma to better my self-perception. I believe in forming a sense of self that is only dependent on what makes me happy. This is why I believe in breakups. Thank you, Lily. Now we have Andrew Dolman from AC Central High School reading I Believe in Sewing. I believe in sewing. When I was a young child, I often had to deal with abusive and toxic situations. I can't count on my hands how many times I wanted to run away from it all. However, I would soon find my wonderful little escape, sewing. When I was nine years old, I lost my great-grandpa. I always looked up to him, and I knew everyone else did too. After his death, I could only think about how horrible my great-grandma, his wife, must have felt. So I decided that I wanted to make her a gift and something for her to look at and smile. I took up my needle and thread for the first time and embroidered her a small tea towel. She was so happy when she saw it and still has it hanging up to this day. I felt proud and accomplished for the first time in many years. And from that day forward, I was hooked. I've often watched the needle on my sewing machine run in and out of the fabric like a rabbit running through the woods. I continue to find solace in watching it. Sewing is a very therapeutic hobby for me. Sewing allows me to escape and just dream of a happier future. Sewing is now part of my daily life. Whenever I feel lost or depressed, my needle and thread sit waiting for me. My hands have learned new skills. My pillows and clothes have become more intricate. I feel proud of what I can do. Showing off my work makes me feel good and has helped immensely to restore my self-confidence. I am my own amazing person, but I needed a needle and thread to show me that. I am much older than I was when I started using sewing as a refuge, but sewing has never left my heart or my hands. Sometimes I just love to watch the needle plunge deep into the fabric before quickly emerging back through the top. The gentle and simple motion of the sewing machine is relaxing and a beautiful reminder of just how far I have come and how far I have left to go. I know that whether by hand or machine, that sewing will always be there for me when I need it. My own little sanctuary. Thank you, Andrew. Next, we have Leilani Essien from Meridian High School reading, Being Weird is a Compliment. What happened to my outgoing little girl? It was a question I always found my mom asking me. She learned that something is wrong with her, I would always respond in my head. I could never figure out what exactly was wrong with me, but I knew that my peers figured it out. I was out of place. I felt this for the first time in first grade when I excitedly walked up to my friends ready to join them for recess and they turned me away saying they didn't, didn't want me around that day so they could have fun. I left upset and spent my time walking around the playground alone. This pattern continued until the third grade when I moved schools. My mom was optimistic that I would fit in there, but I, on the other hand, was dreading the moment when my classmates would take one look at me and decide I'm not good enough. When the first day of school rolled around, my fears were proven true. I once again spent my recesses alone, but this time on the swings. As I swung, I watched everyone on the playground and listened to their chatter. I feel like an alien, I once thought while I watched a group of laughing girls pass by. 
Maybe I am an alien. After school, I would also sit alone, leaning against the window on a bumpy bus ride. I was doing just that when something cold and wet hit my head. I looked up to see that it was pouring outside and the windows had been left hanging open. I, along with others on the bus, rushed to close the windows near me. Once I had closed my window, I looked around to see if everything else was shut and caught eye with the girl with long red hair. I like your shirt, I blurted out, surprising myself. I mentally facepalmed. I didn't even actually like her shirt. Why did I say that? Thanks, she said, smiling. And suddenly, my blatant lie didn't seem to matter anymore. My name's Lydia. What's yours? Lydia became my first real friend. She never asked me to leave her alone, and she always laughed at my jokes. Being odd didn't seem to matter anymore because I had someone to be odd with. When Lydia would get called weird, she would always reply, thank you, that's a compliment. I started saying that as well, and eventually started to believe it. When middle school came about, we went to different schools, but I still carried her words with me. I kept growing my confidence and became okay with standing out. I started joining activities like drama club, and I even became a cheerleader last year. It has now been 10 years since I met Lydia, and I still believe that being called weird is a compliment. Thanks, Leilani. Up next, we have Sophia Flick from Glenwood High School reading I Believe in Friendship Bracelets. <laughs> I Believe in Friendship Bracelets. When I was about eight, I went to a camp called PAVE. It was a theater camp, and at the end of every session, we would put a play on for all the parents. This particular session, there was a friendship bracelet fad. Our art teacher tried to teach us how to make them, but for some reason, I never got it. The process of tying a bunch of strings together and ending up with a bracelet was too confusing. At the end of the session, the other kids in my group had arms covered in bracelets that they exchanged with each other. I pretended not to mind that all of my friends had a physical symbol of their friendship, while I didn't. Eventually, that fad ended. Before I knew it, I was 16 and about to enter my junior year of high school. I hadn't thought about friendship bracelets for years until my family was coming home from vacation. I was scrolling through Instagram when I saw a video of someone making a bracelet. I initially thought nothing of it, scrolling past. However, a few hours later, I found myself searching how to tie friendship bracelet knots and how to read friendship bracelet patterns. By that evening, I'd watched at least five tutorial videos. I don't know what initially compelled me to learn to make friendship bracelets. I wish I could give that particular day sentimental value, but I think I was fueled through pure teenage boredom. The thing that kept me making these bracelets at first was the show I was in. I was in Matilda, and I was the oldest person playing a kid. The younger kids in the show look up to me, and I wanted them to make them all something to remember me by. I really thought that would be the end of an era, and by the beginning of the school year, I'd be out of my bracelet phase, but I was wrong. Every show I was in, every new friend I made, even every time I was bored, I would make a bracelet. When I was a camp counselor at PAVE, I sat down with every kid that was interested and taught them how to make bracelets too. Now my arms are covered in bracelets and even more line my bathroom counter. As a kid, I wanted so badly to be similar to everyone else and I felt like I stuck out, but not in a good way. Now I embrace all of those personality traits that younger me was ashamed of. I'm bold, I'm loud, I'm outgoing, and now I try to pass this acceptance to the younger kids who look up to me. I like that my love for bracelets makes me stand out, and I hope that by being myself, I influence the kids who look up to me to be proud of who they are. Thank you, Sophia. All right, now we have Emily Harrison from Unity Christian School, reading Blood Doesn't Equal Family. Sometimes a biological family isn't going to be the people you need in your life. 
In my case, I was adopted when I was four years old after a lengthy court battle between my family and my biological mother. From the beginning, she had said she couldn't take care of a child and she didn't want one. As soon as it came time for the finalization, she brought my family to court and fought it. Instead of an easy process, it was long and painful for all parties. I still had the visitor, but I never remember considering her a parent of mine. Soon, my birth mother lost interest. I stopped seeing her early on. When I realized I wasn't going to see her again, I sadly felt a sense of relief. At that time, I was just appreciative. I would stop bouncing between homes. My memories of her have slipped away by now, and I've moved on. It has never mattered to me that I was adopted. Instead, I'm grateful for the gift of someone to care for me. Unfit blood parents cause countless issues for their children by selfishly dragging their kids into their problems, just as mine did. It can be necessary for those children to find other parents, people ready and willing to take on the responsibility of having a child. Even friends can be family, anyone close. You never know who will have that sort of connection with you. I was given a second chance. As I grow, I found better people to influence and be a part of my life. Since I was privileged to have been adopted, I have access to a good education and support through anything that may happen, something I would have never experienced otherwise. Despite the absence of biological family in my life, I will never regret not knowing them. Blood or not, I believe family is what you make, not what you are born into. Thank you, Emily. And I just want to take the time to thank our first five essayists. So let's give them a round of applause. Let me tell you, it is not easy coming up here and being that vulnerable and really expressing yourself, especially at the age that these young people are at. So again, thank you for just being open to doing this tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All righty, now we have Avery Hopper from Sullivan High School reading Magic and the Mundane. I believe that there is magic all around us. Ever since I was young, my mind had been filled with all the magical possibilities in the world. While these ideas were influenced by many things, I believe this gentle fire of ideas was sparked and maintained by my great aunt, who encouraged every creative thought I spoke of. Fairies spreading joy in the garden, elves creating wonderful inventions in the forests, and sleepy dragons who rested among their riches in the mountains. We spoke of each of these things so vividly that they almost became real to me. I started to look for the magic in every aspect of my life. I found the most mystical of ideas in the most ordinary scenarios. I would picture ghosts blowing bubbles in my drink to make the carbonation, generous merfolk placing seashells at my feet in ocean waters on vacation, and giants in the shapes of clouds. I thought of all these things, and they each filled me with a cheery sense of wonder. My great aunt was my biggest fan. She would read the crude scribbles of stories I wrote in twistable colored pencil, admire the rough crayon drawings I had handed her, and always listen to me babble on about the newest idea I'd come up with. She told me of classic and timeless stories such as the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. She showed me games that contained magical creatures, and she was always open to watching the most imaginative cartoons with me. I wish so desperately that I could share the new stories I've written with her, that I could show her how much I've improved at art, and that I could listen to a story from her one last time. But even the most magical of people fade away one day. I lost my great aunt to cancer a few years ago. I lost my first best friend and one of my biggest supporters, but I never lost my creative spirit. She would never forgive me if I did. 
I know now that the carbonation is from liquid being infused with CO2, that finding seashells is more of a luck-based thing than I originally thought, and the clouds just kind of look like that. However, I will never let go of the ideas that I used to have, nor will I stop thinking up new ones. Despite things having a more scientific side than I had hoped, I still find a childlike joy in the thought that there is a greater force of some kind out there, that things happen for a reason and that there is no such thing as truly impossible. Humans are creative little creatures and dreaming big is something we're known for. So why should I be told to stop daydreaming about the more whimsical things life might have to offer? Thank you, Avery. Next, we have Mariana Lowe from Hillsborough High School reading, I Believe in Long Nails. My hands are red and pruny from being in my mouth too long. There's a slight discharge of blood from one nail bed. I can't stop. I wish I could keep biting and picking at my fingers, but my hands feel like they are submerged in a tank of piranhas. My heart is swimming with them. Biting my nails was the only way I knew how to cope with stress. I grew up in a house where the minute I heard a loud sound, I knew it was going to be a long night. My mother's boyfriend was on his first beer and there were many more to come. First, it was doors smashing into their frames, then cabinets cracking from force, and sometimes it was glass being reduced to shards. When this violent behavior occurred, I didn't have time to cower in a corner and pray that he wouldn't come into my room. I had to go into the inferno. I was the one who cleaned up the glass. I was the one clearing the endless Guinness cans off the counter. In between these chores, I gnawed at my fingers, savoring every bite that I took. I chewed them until they started bleeding, and sometimes I moved down my fingers, pulling and tearing at my skin. The mutilation was painful, but it was my reward. Like an extra suitcase, my habit followed me right out the door when we finally left. Despite the distance and growth I've enjoyed since this time, there are days where I'm in so much distress that all I want to do is rip my hands apart and bite them until they bleed. But then I remember the pain, and I never want to feel it again. After all, I have learned to cope through a lot of therapy, obviously, but also by getting my nails done. I would save up my money, head to the nail salon, and get the longest practical nails available. Despite tending to wear drab clothes, my go-to nail colors became lavender, rosy future, and bubblegum pink. Now I look at my hands and the corners of my lips reach my ears. I love having long nails. I love ceaselessly tapping on every surface in the house. I love the struggle of picking up change because I cannot get the right angle with my nails. And now I love being able to get my natural nails painted because they've been allowed to grow long enough to pass as acrylics. This is why I believe in long nails. To me, they are so much more than a fashion accessory. Nails are a reminder to care for myself, the self that deserved care all along. Thank you, Mariana. Up next, we have Mark McDonald from Rochester High School reading The Power of Airports. I found myself winding through the infamous mile-long line at Chicago O'Hare International Airport. You know, the customs. Frustration simmering within me, I whispered the famous words of every impatient child. I hate this. Yet, amidst the wait, something changed. I took a few moments to take in my surroundings. Families clustered with luggage, passports in hand, arrival and departure boards disclosing imminent flights. Flight attendants offering welcoming smiles at the gate. 
The symphony of rolling suitcases and the gleam of laminated floors underfoot. Wall art that extends hospitality in forms such as hello and welcome in a multitude of languages. The flight staff's warm salutations ushering you toward your destination with wishes for a joyful journey ahead. An uncanny sense of belonging per pervades these spaces. Growing up in an immigrant family, traveling thousands of miles to visit my grandparents was my norm. There were no grand Thanksgiving feasts or festive Christmas gatherings. No, Granny's coming to visit soon because Dad and I have to work. Airports, for me, embodied a catalyst of cherished childhood memories. Summer visits to Grandma and Grandpa's in England or Mama and Papa's in Hungary. Understandably, airports took a deep personal significance, woven into the fabric of a childhood shaped by cross-continental connections. As I became more independent, airports assumed new roles, igniting the flames of adventure, sparking discoveries, and kindling learning. Airports also bring to mind the radiant smiles of Nicaraguan children who received soccer balls and school supplies from us during our visit, now many years ago. Airports conjure memories of the tradition of annual spring breaks with my mother, exploring various American cities both to relax and to learn. Washington, D.C. unveiled the inner workings of the American democratic machine. Boston's historic sites painted a vivid picture of the Revolutionary War and our nation's formative years. San Francisco illuminated the rich tapestry of immigration and industry. And New York City, my favorite, bared its artistic soul through music and culture. I believe there's an ethereal quality to the anonymity of airports. Yet this very anonymity kindles a shared purpose, to reach one's destination collectively. Airports act as a crucible, uniting people from across the globe in their pursuit of diverse destinations, even when their intentions diverge. Moreover, airports signify potential beyond history. They encapsulate my aspiration to become an ambassador for my homeland, a global emissary, striking agreements, conveying messages, and embracing diverse cultures. Stepping back, I recognize that airports are not just personal to me. They have the power to inspire and connect people from around the world. Airports, symbols of diplomatic collaboration, underscore respect and trust, allowing individuals to cross borders freely for leisure or exploration. But in a more figurative sense, airports foster emotions, experiences, and inspiration, which are the keystones of human motivation. In this intricate tapestry of experiences and aspirations, I find my unwavering belief in the power of airports. They are the vessel of dreams, the crossroads of culture, and the embodiment of limitless potential. Thank you, Mark. Up next, we have Angel Trader from Litchfield High School reading, I Believe in Big Mouths and Small Mouthpieces. As I blew air through the tiny mouthpiece of my trumpet, the sounds coming out just weren't correct. I was frustrated. I was ready to give up. All my fellow trumpet players were already hitting in notes an octave higher than the note I was struggling with. My band teacher could see all the built-up frustration I had. She then pulled out a new instrument. I had never seen it before. What could it be? My band teacher took the trumpet and offered me this new instrument to try. The baritone, she called it. It has a bigger mouthpiece. I think your mouth is too big for the tiny mouthpiece that comes with the trumpet. I was embarrassed. But I now realize this choice I made in the sixth grade was the best decision of my music career. Music for me is an escape from reality. I am able to express myself through what I am listening to, what and how I am playing music, or what I have chosen to sing that day. It's a form of therapy that I have created for myself that is easily accessible. I have created friendships with people through band, choir, and even just sharing a common love for music or a certain music genre. When I am stressing out about a school assignment or a math test, I am able to put in my earbuds and lose myself to the newest favorite song as I write or study. All of this love came from the day I started playing the baritone. 
I have never been more proud to show off something new I've learned. As music became a more active part of my life, I realized there was a love I wanted to share with other people. I serve as my marching band's drum major and share the love with the football game's audience as we perform our newest halftime show and with all the parents of our band members as I listen to our concert. I am honored to be a part of my school's chamber choir, an audition choir, where all of our members share a common love for music. I am able to express these loves every day in so many different settings, and I have found true happiness through this. I have even decided to further share my love and study music. Music therapy is a form of interactive therapy that uses music to help the brain. This is what I have chosen to study in college. This way, I can help out others while also showing them how music can change lives. Music has changed my life for the better. It helped me find a healthy stress reliever and true happiness. I have now been in band for seven years and choir for six years. I couldn't imagine my life without music. I believe in big mouths and small mouthpieces. <laughs> Thanks, Angel. And finally, we have Amy Yang from Glenwood High School reading Finding the Quiet in Your Life. I am not a morning person. I'm the definition of a night owl, and yet I find myself waking up to the sound of my alarm ringing at 5 a.m. I reach over to stop the jarring sound and drag myself out of bed. Still half asleep, I go through the motions of my routine. After I mentally prepare myself for the day ahead of me and wake myself up a little more, I slide into my car. The drive is quiet. The roads are empty, and all I hear is the sound of my music playing in the background. This moment of peace is one of the few benefits of waking up this early. There's a sense of serenity driving down empty roads, the sky still dark, not yet illuminated by the sun. I may be driving towards the ice rink, a place full of bright lights, sounds, and expectations, but in these 20 short minutes, it is quiet. I've always been called loud. My voice can be heard across rooms, through walls, permeating through the air. I laugh easily and talk even easier. Excitement causes my voice to have a mind of its own, words falling out of my mouth in quick succession. Even skating is dependent on sound, with my role to perform according to my music. My life is defined by sound. When it's not filled with the sound of my own voice, it's filled with the sounds of others or music blasting through my headphones. It seems there are rarely any moments of true silence in my life. But during the short 20-minute drive to the rink, my life quiets. And in an all-too-hectic world, it's often hard to justify taking a break. It feels out of place in such a fast-paced society. I'm often left feeling like the world is pushing me to match the constant movement it's experiencing, allotting no time for silence or breaks, lest it leaves me behind. But during these slow, early morning drives, I'm reminded to admire the beauty and the quiet and to enjoy the peace that comes with stillness. And while it may be my still half-asleep self-talking, in these early mornings, I'm no longer burdened by the stresses and fears that normally weigh me down. I find myself simply existing in the world. My friends will think it's ironic that I'm writing an essay about quiet when I'm so rarely it, but quiet isn't necessarily just the absence of sound. Quiet is the calm right before my music starts in competitions. It's the world turning around me during a spin and the minute my blade lands back on the ice after the jump. It's the moment the sun starts to rise after an all-nighter. Quiet is the 20-minute drive to the rink. And so, I believe that quiet is everywhere. You just have to allow yourself to slow down enough to recognize it. Thank you, Amy. And let's give another round of applause for our 10 essayists. Again, thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. I think we all heard something we can take home with us and think about tonight. You know, we talk about those driveway moments when you hear something on the radio and you get kind of stuck listening to it. So I want you to go home and find these essays at our website, nprillinois.org, and keep listening to them. 
and listen to the other ones too. There are a lot there, but I want you all to listen to the ones we heard tonight and think about the messages and think about your family and your friends and what you can take home and gather from these essays. So again, thank you for sharing. And y'all still doing okay out there? Y'all doing all right? Okay. <laughs> We have a couple of more things to do. We're at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. So of course, you know we all love Abraham Lincoln here in Springfield. And so we thought it would be very fitting to hear from ALPLM historian Christian McWhorter as he brings a speech about leadership in Lincoln and kind of relates it to the essayist tonight. So I'm gonna invite Christian up here and you all give him a round of applause as he comes. Okay, people, how am I supposed to follow that? I mean, come on. I mean, really, I mean, this is outstanding. I mean, there's, yeah, words fail me, although thankfully I wrote some notes. What an uh, absolute thrill it is to be here. The last time ALPLM hosted this event was in 2020, uh, right on the cusp, in, in the before times. I didn't uh, speak at that one, but I was in the audience. And it's really one of the most meaningful, I really, like, believe me when I say, this is one of the most meaningful things that we do here. So I'm so delighted to have it back this year uh, here at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum. And I'm really honored to be able to just say a few remarks. And I'll try to keep it short, although that's tough for me. Because what tonight is about is the power of putting words to paper and the power of words to express ideas and to change the world around you. Abraham Lincoln understood this. Abraham Lincoln, as, as many of you probably know, was born in a family that was probably illiterate and as soon as he was able, taught himself to read and write. Lincoln knew that writing was the key to creating the kind of life that he wanted for himself and the kind of world that he wanted to live in. And that is still very much true. And he used his words throughout his career to express his ideas, to sort through his ideas, through private notes that he wrote to himself. But the way we remember him most is the way he used his words to try to shape the world around him. And he was not always successful in doing that, and we don't always agree with some of the ideas that he had, but it was a core part of who he was. And we remember Lincoln's words because of that power. We remember the Gaysburg Address. You remember the second inaugural address because of the way Lincoln used his words effectively and concisely to summarize what the nation meant to him and what the Civil War, the great loss of the Civil War, meant to him. And it's why Lincoln so strongly valued education, which I think we're also celebrating tonight. Abraham Lincoln had well less than one year of formal schooling, but ensured that his children got full educations, at least those who survived long enough to get one. As a politician, Lincoln endorsed education. He helped build the public university system here. And when Lincoln began to imagine for the first time a free biracial America, as he came to imagine later in his career, one of the main things he imagined, we don't know a lot about what the world or what Lincoln envisioned for America after the Civil War because he didn't survive to see it, but he did say that what he wanted was public schooling for freed people. And he wanted that because the enslavers understood the value of the word of the written word as well, which is why they denied it to the people that they oppressed. The enslaved were not allowed to read or write. And Lincoln and other anti-slavery advocates understood that that was one of the most effective ways to oppress someone, is to limit their ability to do those two things, to not let people read what they want to read and write what they want to write. And Lincoln opposed that, and Lincoln envisioned doing his best to reverse that. And so in that context, how great 
to spend time tonight listening to these essays and to read them. And if, if you haven't read them, again, I want to echo what was already said. If you haven't read them, just hearing them tonight is not enough. I think they're, they're wonderful and you should deeply engage with them. Believe me when I say that they inspired me. Um, I think they maybe even intimidated me a little bit. They certainly do now that I'm on stage after they've all been recited. And they would have inspired Abraham Lincoln as well. There's bravery in these pieces. These authors are sharing deep personal stories with us, and they're doing so very effectively. There are elements of these stories that would have resonated with Lincoln's own story and would have inspired him as well. The power of individuality, the pain of losing loved ones, the nurturing power of art, seeking solace in turmoil, the joy of creation, the ups and downs of relationships, and the power of creating and consuming the written word, of course. I want to also point, I'm going to break away from my script here and say how, how happy I am that so many of you gave praise yourselves for being loud people. Because as a fellow loud person, I have dealt with that uh, all my life. And, and I hope at least I'm somewhat of an example to you that being loud is, is as much an advantage as a uh, detriment. Mostly an advantage, at least I think. Anyway, I also want to point out how well written these pieces are. We, we talk a lot about what's in them, but the, it is very, I can say as someone who has worked at a museum for a long time and has been writing for a long time, it is extremely difficult to write concisely. And all of these authors have done that. In doing so, you know, that writing concisely forces you to get at the heart of what you're writing about. And I think they have really successfully done this. These are eloquent pieces. And I think that made me a little scared. So I have just notes here, and I always usually speak off of notes, but I actually wrote out my comments originally. And I stopped myself, I'm like, why am I doing this? And I think it's because I was intimidated. So I felt the need to write out because I wanted to get it right. So I just want to say one more time how humbling it is to be a part of something like this, how much I want to thank all of these authors for sharing these pieces with us. And I really want to say that these pieces reflect the best parts of Abraham Lincoln's legacy. And so I'm glad we were able to do this tonight. I'm glad we were able to do it here. So thank you very much and congratulations. Thank you, Christian. And as a fellow lab person, right on. All right, next we're gonna present our certificates, a few gifts and a few things. So while I do a little talking, I'm gonna have Christian and Randy grab the gift bags over here and kind of get them set up. And then Chancellor Gooch is going to give out the This I Believe books. Essayist, when you hear your name being called, come up front, I'll be there to hand you your certificate, then you'll get your book and then you'll get your gift bag. So get ready to do that. A little bit about these gifts, I just wanna give a shout out right here to Bill Leggy and Grab a Java. Everybody in Springfield knows about Grava Java. We love our coffee here. So during our fun drive, we will be giving our new mugs to donors who make a gift of a certain amount. I forget the amount. So if you're looking for the amount you have to give to give that gift, please see Kate McKenzie after the program because she will be able to tell you, our director of development will tell you how much you need to give to get a mug this year during our fun drive. So I'll show it to you. I have it here. This is going to be our mug this year. Looks so nice and it has a quote on it by Edward R. Moreau, the founder of this, I believe. And it says, to be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. To be credible, we must be truthful. So very good words, well, very well spoken. And I think that's some of what we did tonight. We were very truthful and very vulnerable. So yes, if you're looking to get this mug, please see Kate after the program. But our essayists, our VIPs, because they will be the first ones to get it this year, so yay! <laughs> All right, so I'm going to let Randy have this spot. Chancellor, I'm gonna give you the books and we're gonna go up there, and Christian, we're also gonna go up there to give these young people their certificates and everything tonight.
while they get in place. Thank you all for coming here tonight. Uh, so proud to be a part of NPR Illinois and be able to not just do news, which a lot of people think of us for, but also create community and help convene community and bring us together. And, and I think that's a, a wonderful opportunity to do this for an 18th time. Thank you to all of our uh, sponsors and participants and for all the students and parents for allowing this to happen. So our first uh, essayist is Lily Churchwell. All right, our second is Andrew Dolman. Leilani Essien. Sophia Flick. Emily Harrison. Avery Hopper. Mariana Lowe. Mark McDonald. Angel Trader. and Amy Yang. And before I turn it back over to B, one last big thank you to B Bonner. She does all the work to make this happen. All right, so another round of applause for our authors tonight. I think they did an awesome job. Thank you to all of our sponsors. Thank you to Nelson's Catering for the food which we're about to receive right out in the plaza. I want to thank you all for being here tonight, so give yourselves a round of applause. Again, thank you to Joe Crane and the ALPLM for everything they did for the evening. It is absolutely beautiful in here, and the museum is always great, so thank you. Again, thank you to our wonderful staff here at NPR Illinois. If you are an NPR Illinois staff member, go ahead and wave a hand, stand up right now. Thank you so much. Come on, don't be shy. Y'all work in radio, there you go. <laughs> and if I forgot to, please charge it to my head and not my heart, I tried to get everybody. So again, thank you all for being here. We could not do this event without all of you. So if you're looking to listen to these essays, again, go to nprillinois.org under This I Believe. So again, everybody, thank you for being here tonight. Please enjoy the desserts in This I Believe. Thank you and have a good evening.